Welcome to 15 Minutes on the Way, Season 7, The Prophets, the PH Prophets. If you're a first-time listener, you really owe it to yourself to start at the beginning. You can easily find Episode 1 of Season 1 at 15minutesontheway.com. Don't spell out the number. Otherwise, brace yourself for a conversation with God's voice telling His side of your story. If you're just coming back to the podcast after a few weeks away, let us strongly urge you to listen to last week's episode, episode 11 in season 7, before plunging ahead with this, because this truly is part 2 of a building action sequence. You'll recall from last week's episode that the high priest Jehoiada and his princess bride Jehoshabeath have kept in hiding for six years the sole remaining survivor of David's line. After the six years are over and again we point out that everything that's happening next is in the seventh year, the high priest Jehoiada sets his plan in motion. He has secretly been building an alliance with army commanders and other leaders of Judah. You can research it in 2 Chronicles 23. He has quietly augmented the temple guard with additional troops, 1 Kings 11.4. When the time is ripe, he loads the temple up with soldiers during the changing of the guard on the Sabbath, with all the additional ceremonial movement masking the addition of troops. And then he strikes. Only he doesn't have to. Everyone knows Jehoiada is in the right to be placing Joash on the throne. Here's what happens next. The strike teams of extra soldiers are ready at the changing of the guard. Levites from all over Judah are there at the temple too, as well as the heads of families from across the land. The temple is filled with people who are ready to protect Joash, so when the high priest brings out the king's son, anoints him as king, and puts a crown on his head, the place erupts with joyful praise. Trumpets, percussion, lyres, the whole orchestra, which is heard by Athalia over in the palace. She strides to the temple to see what's going on, and lo and behold, her grandson is standing in the king's place beside the great pillar thinking, I thought I killed every one of those little brats. Her shouts of treason are muffled by the people's rejoicing as she is escorted out of the temple environs and executed. Joash is one grandchild she'll not get her hands on. The wise and faithful high priest Jehoiada makes a covenant between himself, the king, and the people, renewing their commitment to be the people of Yahweh. Second Chronicles 23.16 Boy, was that a good day. On the heels of this renewal, the people storm Jerusalem's temple to Baal and tear it to pieces, putting the local priest of Baal out of business permanently. Knowing that lasting change is needed, Jehoiada doesn't only wipe out bad practices, he renews good ones in their place. And so the Levites that have come from across the land are recommissioned. They renew burnt offerings to me along with everything else we laid out in the law we gave Moses. 
And so it is a season of good in Judah again. Joash is still young, and the good priest Jehoiada is admittedly a strong positive influence on this king. Jehoiada carefully finds two wives for Joash from amongst our people. 2 Kings 14.2 That they worship us increases the odds of positive spousal influence. That there are two of them increases the potential for heirs to the throne, a sensed priority after so close a call with bad grandma there. Joash is not a mere puppet king, though, and he, in fact, is the one that instigates a program to restore our temple to at least some of its former glory. 2 Chronicles 24, 2 Kings 12. It's been three generations since Jehoshaphat had the place humming, and the temple has suffered both neglect and then raids even by Baal worshippers to use our sacrificial gear to worship their imposter with. Thanks to Joash, though, the funds are collected from across Judah to hire masons, carpenters, and metal workers to restore the structures of the temple, as well as replace all the utensils that had been stolen over the years. Everything is just like old times for as long as the priest Jehoiada lives. Would that that sentence had Joash in the place of Jehoiada. So, you know what's coming. Honestly, what follows is a cascade of faithlessness in both kingdoms, with a hopeful uptick cycle in Judah from time to time, but with no such hope in the north. We are going to spare you as much detail as possible, but the owner's manual covers these times as it does in order for future generations to learn from the course of consequences, be they good or ill, brought by the choices made. I will forgive you if at some point in the intrigue to come of thrones, battles, prophets, and kings you decide to skip ahead. I'd much prefer that you stay with us rather than walk away here when we've come so far together. If things start feeling ponderous and you want to take a break from them, that's fine. Just make sure you keep scanning the titles of future episodes, and when you see the name of Amos... Start listening again with him. You definitely need to know about Amos and his compadres, as they represent a shift in the way we are doing things. Once the state funeral for good Jehoiada is finished and he is buried with great honor among the sleeping kings, remember, Jehoiada is just the high priest, not a king, so his burial amongst the royals shows how much the people respect and honor him, and know how much good he is responsible for in Joash's reign. Once good Jehoiada is laid to honorific rest, another group steps in to influence the living king. Politicians, the officials of Judah, Second Chronicles 24.17 and following, detail the sad shift in Joash and the resulting heartbreak. The officials of Judah had been part of the problem in the past. Notice that they had not been part of Jehoiada's renewal plan. He'd enlisted Levites and family heads from across Judah, not political officials. He knew whose pocket they were in. Sound familiar? The politicians were always in favor of the old status quo, biding their time until that meddlesome goody-two-shoes Jehoiada went the way of all things. 
Now they managed to quickly wheedle their way into Joash's thinking, convincing him that all this focus on me is a mistake, telling him they'll give him all the support he needs. They just want one little change and ask that the deities local to their jurisdictions, who really know the territory, be allowed to handle everyday life again. Among other things, they miss their kickbacks from the neighborhood shrines. Unbelievably, Joash actually listens to them, reigniting the fires to Baal and Asherah across Judah, setting up new idols and worship poles to them. I send prophets among them to bring them back to me, but they won't listen. Not all are caught up in the new policy, though. The son of Jehoiada, noble Zechariah, Yahweh has remembered. Yep, elephants have nothing on me. Zechariah follows me still, and my spirit falls upon him. He preaches the now age-old sermon. Follow Yahweh, and he is bound to cover and protect you. Follow another God, and Yahweh will let them take care of you, just like you're asking them to. Since you've clearly let go of Yahweh, he's letting go of you because you asked him to. So swift and complete has been Joash's shift of attitude that Zechariah is executed for daring to proclaim this. Zechariah's dying words are, May Yahweh see this and call you to account. That's in Second Chronicles twenty four twenty one. And so when the army of Aram comes up against Judah later that year, neither Baal nor any of the other gods to whom Judah has turned show up to help them. The enemy wins, sending spoils back to their king in Damascus, leaving King Joash severely wounded. You'll recall it was the aristocratic politicians that instigated the abrupt shift in Joash's policies. The hearts of many common people knew better, but they were powerless. However, Joash's servants, commoners themselves, have watched the king's sequence of betrayal of the noble priest Jehoiada and of me. They've even witnessed Joash's murder of Jehoiada's son Zechariah in response to Zechariah saying exactly what his father would have said in response to the king's treacherous about-face. With Zechariah's dying call to avenge his murder in their ears, Joash's common servants quietly increased the king's severe injuries from his battle with Aram to the mortal level, and he dies upon his bed. When he is buried, he is denied the honor given his noble high priest. Joash is not entombed alongside Jehoiada with the kings who'd gone before him. He is instead buried with common folk. Somehow the pattern that's become clear to you escapes the kings of both Israel and Judah. There's really just one very simple need, to at least try to look to and follow me so that I can serve as, well, me, protector, defender, supplier, provider, all that. But I am required by righteousness to abide by our contract with Moses and all the people. Were I to transgress the contract, I would cease to be sinless, cease to be perfect, cease to be myself. Would the universe be unmade? No one is going to find that out, 
because I am going to abide by that contract. And you don't need me to remind you that just as the contract, also known as the covenant I made with the twelve tribes, the contract binds or releases my protection and provision to and from Israel. It also binds or releases the land from them as well, which somehow is something these guys haven't managed to learn, though it's crystal clear to you just sitting there without even having prophets knocking on your door with helpful reminders. Let us return to Jehu, who's been reigning up north during most of Jehoash's reign in Judah. Jehu has made some strong strides to set Israel straight, but the sin of Jeroboam is so deeply embedded in the thinking of the northern kingdom, even the reformer Jehu can't do away with it. So I have to keep my promise. I don't necessarily cause the neighbors to start pecking away at Israel's borders, but when they do, I am no longer bound to keep them out. Israel has released me from our covenant by their repeated violation of their responsibilities required in that covenant. Once again, the covenant now in fact requires me to withhold my blessing and protection. I have held off as long as possible. Even now I am still preparing prophets to call my people to repent and return to us and reignite the covenant so that I can cover them. Unless they do, however, I am forced to abide by the terms to which we and the people agreed and swore our compliance. Therefore, pieces of the land of northeast Israel begin to slip away, as none of the non-divinities being worshipped in the north appear to aid Jehu against the attacks of Hazael, king of Aram, Syria. Hazael means whom God sees, 2 Kings 10.31. And so, though he was obedient to a point and brought an end to much of the wickedness in Israel, because Jehu leaves so much compromise and evil in place to continue the corruption of my people, Jehu rules over less territory at his death than when he first began to reign. Jehu's son, Jehoahaz, of course, continues in his father's pluralistic footsteps. And so Aram continues to have success in pecking away and gaining more land from Israel at her eastern borders. 2 Kings 13.1 summarizes Jehoahaz's reign. There is a brief moment of perspicacity in Jehoahaz when he cries out to me for help. Sadly, this moment is more or less reached through the process of elimination as none of the other gods seem to have been able to help to whom he's looked first, second, and third. This cry is mostly a might-as-well-give-old-Yahweh-a-try. Although Jehoahaz has not turned the nation back to me in anything approaching what is needed, we are at the stage of Israel being so far gone that any movement in our direction needs to be affirmed and rewarded. We thus remove the Syrian threat to the extent that those who'd lost their eastern homes can return to them. Note that we do not give Jehoahaz a victory over Hazael. We simply draw the marauding king away from pestering the borders for a while. Hazael has fallen into the trap of chess players in general so focused on their attack plans that they fail to see what's coming from another direction. 
When Assyria marches on Damascus, the surprised king of Syria draws all his forces back from Israel to protect their homeland. Like father, like son. Like Jehu, his son Jehoahaz takes a step in the right direction, but does not complete his journey to be on the way. Though I am the one who answers Jehoahaz's call to remove the Syrian threat from the east, the worship of plural gods continues, and Jehoahaz does not look to me again for the remainder of his unexceptional reign. You can go ahead and think it was all just a coincidence stemming completely from the political situation at the time, but Assyria didn't march on Damascus until Jehoahaz asked me for help. One such coincidence does not build a huge case for us, but an entire bookful should. Thanks for listening. We hope this episode has been a blessing to you. If you'd like to support what we do, give us a review on iTunes or Facebook, then share this podcast with your friends. There's a link to the very first episode right under today's podcast on our website, 15minutesontheway.com. We hope today's podcast has reminded you that you, friend, are part of an epic story that is still unfolding today. So keep walking on the way. And until next time, be good to yourself.